There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a bulletin board. <laughs> and you can pin to me anything you want to. <laughs> a tail? Uh, a tail, maybe. But I'm also feeling quite quite uh, minimal. And that is really handy because today's guest has a career which has been dedicated to exploring and mining and uh, investigating that very word, that very idea, that very conceptual concept mm-hmm. <laughs> conceptual concept i'm i'm cancelled um uh, yeah <laughs> that's me losing all my all my street cred yeah and, and I, I i i knew about today's guest's work quite a while ago actually but it came more into focus in recent times because he's been working with maureen paley in london and since they've been working together i I was kind of more in detail focused on the work. And also I'm a big fan of his gallery in New York, um, Bortolami, Stefani is amazing. And there was a recent exhibition, I think it was this year actually, but it was it was looking at a body of work from a residency in Sao Paulo. And I particularly resonated with, the, with, with that show. I, I loved the um, reference to the Brazilian artist um, Helio Artesica and just the kind of the the approach to space and time and and these bulletin boards which are actually a series of artworks created by today's guest which I quite embarrassingly referenced earlier and uh, I think we're talking to today's guest from New York we would like to welcome to talk art the wonderful artist Tom, Tom Burr. Burr. hi Tom hi guys it's very <laughs> nice to be here nice to meet you both um, and thanks for having me of course. Where so you're in New York right now? In and... fact, I'm not. In fact, I'm oh. not. Um, I'm in Torrington, Connecticut, which is about two and a half hours north of New York. That's cool. That's so, right. so well, Torrington, Connecticut, is important to you because you have a whole project space there, the Torrington Project. Well, I mean, I live. I live in New York. I never want to give up that designation. I worked very hard to be called a New York artist, but I'm not there very often these days. I have an apartment there. Uh, where I have an office, but most of my center of gravity has shifted uh, north of the city in the last few years, where I have a house. And, um, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I have this sort of, I hesitate to call it a studio, although it incorporates a stu- my studio, but it's more than that. It's this sort of space that I've been grappling with um, past works, future works, space, um, navigation of people in relationship to New York, etc. 
Um, and so that's where I am right now. And the space you're in right now looks visually like really pleasing. It's kind of almost like a film set or something. Like the textures, even your seat and like the carpet behind you and then the wooden panels with glass in, it all looks very like, I don't know, Well, that's not carpet, that's, that's like a lino panel, <clears throat> panels. Oh, is it lino? That is linoleum, that's right. This is the office space, um, the, the more intimate space of a quite vast space. It's 15,000 square feet. Um, it's an old factory building. Torrington's an old factory town. And out there, it looks much more like you know, Dia Beacon or something like that. Here's my little Wombic uh, brain trust here. Um, nice. But we're in the brain. You're, you're in my brain. <laughs> uh, but it's very cold. It's very cold up here. It's colder than New York. So I'm um, I'm huddling inside here. You said just now then that you were working very hard. You worked very hard to be called a New York artist, and you moved to New York in 1982. Why Why did you have to work hard to be a New York artist, and why was that an ambition of yours? I'm not so sure I had to necessarily work hard to get there. Uh, but, I mean, certainly not in 1982, if that's when I moved there. I guess it was. I think, I think it's, um, it's, it's an aspirational sort of place. Um, I happen to grow up fairly close to New York. But if I had not lived close to New York, I probably would, would have moved to New York anyway during that period. But there's certain kinds of, you know, I, I wear it as a sort of badge of honor of having, be, being a New York artist. And the certain, particularly during the period of time that I lived there during the 1980s, during the 1990s, during a lot of culture wars and a lot of uh, um, um, other wars that were occurring. Um, so I never, wanna, I never wanna be completely disengaged from that context or, or be disconnected from it. But it increasingly became a bit claustrophobic for me relative to certain power dynamics that I uh, found around myself and that I decided I needed some conceptual but actual physical distance from. And so that's why I've I've kind of pulled back and now I can be a little bit more careful about what element when I, when I dip my toe in and, and when it, when it comes to kick me. <laughs> Your work is, as Rob described, you work in minimalism. So for people listening who might not understand what that concept is when it comes to an art practice, what exactly is minimalism for you? Well, I guess I don't necessarily think so much of myself as, as working in a minimalist way myself, although maybe maybe it looks that way sometimes. But I think that my work was very much um, from a fairly young age, reacting to um, a body of work that occurred during the 1960s and 1970s, in my case, um, very sculptural work that was about reductive form, was about physical presence, was about acknowledging its context uh, so that, but, but much of that work, the practitioners or the, the artists that, that were from that generation were often very sort of uh, figures that had a lot to do with a kind of machismo and a kind of masculine identity. So this became fertile territory for me to kind of work with and against when I, when I was a young artist. And then I sort of developed it through many different iterations. So rather than being confused with um, a minimalist myself, because I feel quite excessive in my <laughs> in my in my thinking. I'm a, I'm a maximalist on, on that level, but much of my work is grounded in the history of minimalism. So you're looking at so, so all of your work. Would that always springboard from one of these artists that I guess are, are straight male artists? 
your work kind of, I think you've described it as collapsing into the other artists' work or it folds into their practices. So these artists like Richard Serra and Tony Smith, these kind of monuments of minimalism or conceptualism. Your work is in reference to that, but yet I guess you're queering that in your own way. I, th- I think that's true. You know, when I first was, um, when I was in high school, and I had access to, it was actually during the period of post-minimalism. So somebody like Ava Hess was very important to me. Robert Smithson was very important to me. These people were so exciting to me because I had, it all of a sudden opened up a possibility of how to be an artist that I had never really anticipated. And I'm not sure that I would have wanted to be an artist had it not been for seeing this sort of work. I think many people will say, have a story like this. It was sort of a revelation for me. And then when I went to art school, and this is 1982 in New York, I discovered theory. It was a very heady time and specifically feminist theory um, that was pretty much based in opposition to that work that I was looking at. So that became hugely exciting for me. So I started to use those tools. I studied with people like um, like Barbara Kruger. I studied with Dara Birnbaum. I studied with Yvonne Rayner, Craig Owens. And these people kind of were a filter in a way. And I suppose that's one of the best things an education could be called. It was a filter through which I could look at my own interests and my own inclinations and kind of gave me the tools to think about this very term that you that you just mentioned, Russell, this idea of, of queering. Um, and I don't think I was consciously doing that. In fact, I wasn't even consciously using the word queer at that point. I was thinking about gay subjectivities. I was thinking about different kinds of publics and different kinds of form and how this feminist critique could also perhaps, I could, I could have a, a place in that somehow. I could, I could situate myself in that. Do you think these artists, if, if they were still alive, were aware that there was a younger artist that was channeling them and making work w- within his own you know, lived experience? Well, I know that Richard Serra was aware. Well, I did a piece called Deep Purple mm-hmm. uh, that was um, a riff, a play, uh, an interpretation, a copy, a, a quite well-known uh, and notorious work by him called Tilted Ark, which was probably the most famous public art uh, debacle uh, in, 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 in contemporary art history, went up a, a Corten Steel piece that went up in Federal Plaza in New York in 1981 and was removed in 1989 for multiple reasons. Um, the primary reason given was that the people in the, it was not friendly enough. But there were many other reasons that that we could go into about probably why this piece was dismantled. And Richard Serra had a very orthodox um, idea of what site specificity was, right? So that if the work were to come down, that work would no longer exist. And then I was interested in something much more, uh, quite frankly, I think much more queer, like this more notion of a much more opportunistic practice, a promiscuous practice, a practice that had to always think about being looked at or having to camouflage itself or having to be more aware of its surroundings. So I wanted to do a piece that played with Tilted Arc that was very much, much more accommodating, could shift locations, could play with different uh, of its, of its variables. And when Richard Serra heard heard that I had made this uh, piece called Deep Purple, because it was purple, he had this reaction of just like, which reminded me, you know, it reminded me of, um, I think when Marlena Dietrich had heard that but Madonna wanted to make a remake of the Blue Angel, and she just was like, it's just kind of like, just completely take the wind out of your sails as a sort of generational thing, which I took to be kind of um, uh, some sort of a, 
um, an indicator that maybe I was on the on the right track. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely, and you're always looking at the the built environment to say we're talking about this, you know, this this wall that was kind of built up. But you're talking about like movements of gay men, the behavior that gay men have within the built environment. So there was a whole series you did on on public restrooms, which, you know, there's different gazes going into that restroom. There's a restroom of, of the general public using the bathroom because they need to use the toilet. Then there's their queer gaze, the gay gaze going on within that built environment. And you're fascinated in the, the subculture within the built environment. Yeah, I think when I when I came to New York, I, I did. I started this whole body of work. It all, in a way, came out of one little essay um, that, I mean, came out of many things, but it came out of one essay that Robert Smithson's Robert Smithson's last essay called "Frederick Law Olmsted in the Dialectical Landscape," and it was about Central Park, and it was this kind of beautiful essay, uh, last essay that he wrote, where he kind of takes this parkour, this wandering through the park from from the east side, as I recall, to the west side, ends up at the Museum of Natural History. But he passes through the Ramble, right, which uh, Frederick Law Olmsted had designed as the most naturalistic part of the park. All of it is artificial. The boulders were brought in, the native plants, all of it was brought in. And early on, it became a lover's lane, essentially, for for all kinds of people, straight people (laughs) included. Um, And then it became a very queer uh, cruising grounds. So that became very fascinating for me. I wanted to see sort of what... If, Richard, if, if Robert Smithson had sort of piqued my interest, why was that? And of course, I was equally excited by Robert Smithson's work as I was in the Ramble, right? So this kind of clandestine history that was kind of brushed over by, by the artwork and by, by the reception of that, that, that essay that I was given to read um, in art school. Um, so that kind of unearthing, to use a, a more of a, a, a Smithson kind of term, became super exciting to me. This idea of looking at different publics, thinking about different publics, and how how, for instance, in the Ramble, the bird watchers could coexist with um, the gay cruisers, and all these different dialectical like views and looks and gazes were going on at the same time. So that kind of complexity started to interest me, um, and that how how one public interacts with another, and that, that a public is not a monolithic thing. It's, it's a very fragmented, complicated, layered kind of experience it also feels timeless that's the thing about that space is that it feels like when when i look at your work and and we're talking about this subject of cruising it instantly comes to mind is like george michael you know public restrooms he's kind of like the ambassador for cruising he was you know he was very vocal about it going over to hampstead Heath. i think of things like oscar wilde i think of you know people the the furtive behavior of, of gay men historically the historical persona of of gay men in these like cruising grounds, in these bathrooms, in these built environments. And there is a real anthropological fascination that I think gay people especially have. I think we, we knowing our own kind of inherited behavior that gay men have passed down. And I feel like you, your work is such an experiment, one one experiment, such an, an expression of the history of what, what gay people have done historically to satisfy themselves. I mean, it's interesting that you use the example of, for instance, of George Michael, right? Because, but George Michael, it wasn't always there, was it? So, so as a young uh, queer person, very frustrating to know that gay, that George Michael was gay, but that he wasn't, but that that wasn't necessarily how he was digested by the, or, or consumed by the public either, that this had to be 
um, furtively <laughs> uh, dealt with, that this had to be about camouflage, this had to be about closeted issues. Um, even and that and that kind of cycle continually repeats itself. So that kind of complexity always kind of excited me and seemed more closer to some kind of truth than simply celebrating. Um, meaning that could have been. So when I was working, when I was working in the in the late eighties and early nineties, any work that seemed to be about gay subjectivity, queer subjectivity often tend to be photo-based, often tended to be about picturing the body, often tended to picture the body removed from a context. And that was very frustrating to me and became increasingly frustrating to me as we entered, um, as, all my, as all my friends were dying, as we entered the AIDS crisis and kept entering it and kept entering it and kept entering it and never exited it. But, but that kind of simplicity of representation, while it's, in certain instances, and I'm thinking specifically of um, uh, ACT UP or Grand Fury or something like that, certain instances was extremely important. But in terms of entering other discourses, um, fell flat for me. That I, did, I didn't think that gay subjectivity simply needed to be represented by an image of a torso. Or, or, or there was, it was also about, I was also interested in homophobia at the same time that I was interested in celebrating any kind of specific subjectivity. These things are so intertwined and intermeshed. So, so that, that's what interested me very, very much about a place like the Ramble, of which there are many, that they overlays, that have all these different layers to them. We, we, we interviewed um, a painter recently called Jimmy Wright, and he was talking about how there was almost like a, within the cruising kind of, um, you know, culture, there was almost a kind of leveling um, where, where, where it didn't matter no, what part, a hierarchy, yeah, it didn't matter what part of society you were from, like you might be a doctor, you might be a banker, you might um, work behind a bar, you might, you know, wh whatever job you did kind of was immaterial in that context. And suddenly you would have people that would never interact with each other um, in any other situation, like outside of the, yeah. outside of that bathroom or something. And I thought it was such a wonderful sort of anecdote in a sense that he'd obviously experienced himself in the 60s 70s but I, I love that leveling idea of space as well and how that it's almost transformative like you walk through that door and then suddenly those walls p permit some some other kind of connection between us yeah but there's also an invisibility in them spaces is the fact that if you're not looking Anonymity, for it you're not aware yeah. of it you might completely miss it you know there, right. there's a there's cruising grounds all over the place and yeah. as gay people we're aware of them but if someone's walking a dog who would not be looking for it we'll probably think oh there's a lot of guys out today what are they doing <laughs> having a walk while their wives are cooking the, the roast dinner on a sunday but it's like if you're not aware of it then these things are all happening the whole time but isn't that so fascinating to me? Because that, that that starts to be a little bit how culture society operates generally. And I always thought that one of the kinds of very positive things that um, that that queer sensibility can do is to start to to start to work on culture at large, right? Not simply to say oh, we're here over here and let's celebrate that, but let's see how we can actually use it as a critical tool. How can we dismantle things? And I and I and it just it, it's it was very humorous when I spent a lot of time at the Ramble, both for my own pleasure, but also for my work, or which was also pleasure. But I started to watch and love all of that kinds of of of, of different gazes and 
and not simply people not knowing all those codes, people knowing all those codes and actually having their own codes. The bird watchers had their own codes. The police, the cops had their own codes. And all of these things, sometimes there would be a meeting of minds and other times there would be real problems that would erupt. But that kind of complexity, that kind of contextualization just always seemed much, as I say, closer to some sort of a truth than any kind of um, simplistic, isolated, image it's also very complex in a sense of um like a threat of violence or um that you know all those kind of layers as well you know it's, it's not yeah. just necessarily um pleasure i don't know time, about yeah. a pleasurable yeah. experience like you you never quite know there's a kind of energy there like a, a risk level as well which is a kind of heightened heightened thing yeah i was thinking about that a, a little bit when you just mentioned that idea of the kind of uh, democratic quality of someplace like the Rambler cruising in general, because yes, yes, but but at a, but but for many people at a very high risk. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you sure. know, I mean, what 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 are the what are the activities that that follow back out? Um, and this is kind of interesting because, you know, I was um, thinking of that in some ways. This is and we're talking about work that I made in the late eighties, early nineties, in a certain way. Um, it seems like a very much of a time capsule, but very recently I've gotten engaged with um, some younger artists who created something called the Cruising Pavilion, um, which was um, uh, an experiment. Two young French uh, um, uh, theoreticians, writers, artists called Charles Tessou and Pierre Mateos, who did something called the Cruising Pavilion as part of the Venice Architecture Biennale, Venice Architecture Biennale. And we kind of, um, um, it was kind of a model of, of sorts that included many artists. Um, I was one of them. And it was about using that as kind of a, almost a conceptual model going forward. And how, do, how does that still have any kind of relevance, the idea of cruising and cruising space relative to a digital world? Um, and, and a digital world where architecture still matters, right? Because the, digi the digital world has not made architecture and physical things and limitations and spatial possibilities disappear. It's just made them more complex. Um, so there, this dialogue has become uh, um, recent again for me too, which I find very interesting. You quite like the idea of, of um, the, not, not the obsolete, but things that are becoming obsolete that the, the process of something like you were talking about architecture won't become obsolete, but certain building materials might, or certain buildings might become obsolete or they're on their way to it. And when it comes to materiality within your sculptural practice, there are things that you are fascinated by like record sleeves, for example, or, or records, which feel like they've always been on the way to become an obsolete, but yet they keep coming back. They have this circular movement coming back and that within your practice, uh, and again, they appear on these bulletin boards, which Rob said at the beginning, in a sculptural form, you're, you're really fascinated in, in this world that is, you know, changing. And, and, and in, in the same as cruising grounds for a while, it was like people were saying, you know, men don't go out and meet in bars and clubs anymore. Men don't meet in queer spaces. Everything's done online. And these cruising places are no longer needed because you just go on an app and you can meet someone. That, that, thing is is something that really drives you and what you're always looking for that extra layer within your practice right i, I think i think that's right um i'm interested in, and, and i think sometimes i have inclinations or things are part of my sensibility and things that i'm attracted to things and then i feel the need to kind of justify them a little bit so i'm never quite sure which comes first but in this case 
I think I've always felt that you could look at the present uh, much more clearly uh, with things that are just slipping away from it. Um, so a, a concrete example, I did an exhibition in 1995 uh, called 42nd Street Structures. Mm. And it was at this gallery, American Fine Arts, uh, that I showed with when I was a young artist. And it was a very important context for me at the time, very defining context, one that I very much wanted to be a part of, as I, as I recall. And this exhibition took place uh, during um, the closing of all the sex industries in Times Square, not after it had happened and not anticipating it. It was actually during that time that Giuliani had finally signed off, our, our, our friend Rudy, Rudy Giuliani had signed off on decades-long um, work to, um, to remove the sex industry from New York City. Um, and they finally passed something that said, you know, no sex shop can be within 100 feet of a church, a school, a blah, 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 but something that rendered it absolutely impossible to exist. And then Walt Disney of course, came in and, and we know the rest of that story. But it was very, very important to me that that exhibition would be actually seen from the future as kind of marking marking that place in time, having been made at that moment that that's just about to slip away. And I think the record sleeves is a similar kind of thing, maybe perhaps more as a material, more, more open, more abstract, less specific that way. But I was always interested in the fact and still am but the, the vinyl, yes, the vinyl had a real resurgence within um, DJ in, in terms of club world. But as an, as, in terms of people's homes, unless you're extremely hip, very small percentage of extremely hip people, um, the vinyl was slipping away, right? But we still knew what it was. There was still this idea of a memory trace of it, that it was something that was not completely gone from our consciousness, and an exhibition I just finished, um, or they just closed in Berlin at Gallery Neu, which is a gallery that I've worked with for, for many, many years in Berlin. Um, I used um, DVDs as part of the, 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 the makeup of the, of the sort of sculptural collage. And DVDs now have this kind of interesting place for me right now because they're not quite old and sexy enough to be picked up on the street, Retro. like sold on the street. Yeah, yeah they're not, they're, they haven't, right. They haven't have, they don't have status yet. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but they are still used. They're still circulated in many parts of the world. Most people know what that box is. Most people know what that physicality is, but they're obviously being pushed out. They're on their way out. They don't speak of the, of the new and the present moment. They speak of the just recent past. So is your work a historical document in some ways, like proof or evidence that we were here? I like to, I'd, I've never thought of it that way, but I like the sound of that. Um, I think I think um, I think that's actually a very very nice way to think of artwork in general, right? Is this kind of scratching, that kind of um, self conscious kind of uh, ability to kind of make sense of where we are and what we're doing? I think when I was young, I suppose I had talent talents but I don't think I was one of those kids where it was obvious what I would do, except I was very sensitive <laughs> and I was very, um, uh, I was more artistic than I had artistic abilities. <laughs> I was always much more in love with the role of the artist than actually having to make anything. 
And that's why it was a revelation to me later when I learned you didn't have to just be a good painter to be an artist, right? Because that never interested me. I never wanted to be, I never wanted to make something that someone might not see. I always, I always thought a bit more like an architect or a theater production or, or, or a musician where I would make something for an audience. I, the audience would complete that work. I, I didn't identify with that idea of making something very private that may or may not get discovered. So audience became super important to me um, from a young age and that dynamic um, happening that way um, still is. Your work is, um, so you're saying the audience is really important. I mean, you make work to be activated by an audience. And also I've, I've read that, you know, the way that audiences make projections onto your work is really fascinating to you. You had a show where you showed um, horse uh, apparatus, ephemera, like horse bits and like leather kind of stirrups or whatever it is you put on a horse when you go horse riding. But you took them from the context of a horse's stable or attached to a horse and you hung them up on structures or on the wall and people automatically assumed it was fetish wear. People automatically automatically saw the human um, uh, experience within these and that was fascinating to you and, and a fascinating concept that that what we project onto the work is as important as what is what you're putting out there i mean to be to be perfectly candid of course i knew that that was going to be the case right but um i, I knew that would happen I, i'm sort of also laughing to myself because i in this big space is one there's one incredible wall that has all these shelves i call it the unconscious each each zone in here has sort of a name a pet name that's the unconscious. First of all, that's the place with the least amount of windows. It's inward looking. And I have a lot of early drawings hanging there. And then um, someone who helps me here is a, man named, a young man named Elijah. And Elijah labels all these boxes because he knows I like order. And I gave him a label maker. So and he, and he put the horse tack. There's still horse tack here that, I've, that I sometimes use. And he's, he, he labeled it exotic, which I liked. Which... <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which plays with that, but you know, I and I, I had an I had an exhibition in Lausanne, Switzerland, where I was, the poster of which was one of these put downs, which was these iron rings on the wall and this horse tack that would fall down, and I hadn't added anything except that iron ring, and they'd fall down into the space in various kinds of almost sort of poetic kinds of displays, again, kind of playing with almost a post minimalist sculpture, but they were all horse tack that I had bought, and this poster was very prominent in Lausanne and it got into the newspaper in this very small hotel I was staying in in Switzerland. Um, there was, you know, very much a little pension where it was run by, you know, a, a husband and wife, older couple. And and I had been in and out of the, the hotel for weeks during installation. And it, then it hit the newspaper with this picture of this fetishistic horse thing. And I, I saw them as I came in one day, like, looking at the newspaper, then looking up to me and looking at the newspaper. And I really wanted to, like, have, like, you know, several young boys in chains with me or something that I was dragging up to my hotel <laughs> room to, yeah, to, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. to fulfill all of their period presumptions, <laughs> desires. Yeah. But I mean, but of course, I, but if, I, I like that though. I like that things have associations and I like playing with those associations. And I like the idea of domestication of dogs and, and horses. And I like thinking about that relative to our own bodies. And why do we do that? And why do we want to control, um, these the, these animals and what does that say about ourselves and and how often do we do we and those things are always overlapping. 
I'm quite interested in in if you're a visitor to one of your installations or 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 you know you stood in front of one of your artworks like the the memory of it like the memory of the interaction with it can also be an, a powerful thing that kind of lasts and it got me thinking about Gordon Matter Clark because I grew up being obsessed with like Frida Kahlo say but when I started studying art I learned about Gordon Matter Clark quite quickly because I guess everybody does but it was so transformative this idea that it could be almost like the memory of an artwork and of course it's documented through photography and through writing and through journals and things like that and drawings you know his sketches but but it's I, I will never see that artwork and I, I I like that idea of the kind of the memory of it and how powerful that can be as a as, as an art form first of all I really love to hear Gordon Meta Clark and Frida Kahlo in the same sentence. Because I think somehow, <laughs> to me that that to me that's not that's where I am. Right. I, I like these two these two potentially contradictory kinds of figures, right? Yeah. But I I say maybe I say maybe they're not. Mm. And 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 um, it's funny you should say that though because I've often worked with kind of coming out of also traditions of site specificity. Mm-hmm. And there, and and I, I mentioned the story about Richard Serra and the, his orthodox notion that when that work was destroyed or taken down by the government, it no longer existed, right? But there's a scar there. There's a memory trace. That that kind of memory trace is very interesting to me. So I've often been asked when some of my works are more site grounded or site sensitive, uh, site inspired than others, and. Some many people always ask me, you know, well, what does it mean then to change the location? Like, like, can, can you take a work that you so clearly designed for this space and and put it somewhere else? And I'm, and I always, to me, it, it it's it's a very important question, and but the answer is equally important, and that is that you know this memory trace, this memory trace goes with the work, right? And that becomes something. Like, it's not maybe so dissimilar from remembering exactly the physical location of your first kiss or where you first read a particular book or where you had a traumatic experience or you had an extremely positive experience. And one of the things that I, it was an impetus for me to create this project here, this, what I call the Torrington project in this space was, yes, I wanted to play with space. I wanted to create spatial relations with my work. I wanted to extend what I could do that way. But sometimes I have trouble remembering my own work. I have I, I, I look it up on my phone. I don't I, I don't have access to a lot of my work. It's out. It's in different places. And sometimes my work can be kind of on paper. It's painfully simplistic, not just simple. And um, and I have trouble remembering the physical encounter with it. So that one of the reasons to 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 create this space is I've recreated old works that were destroyed for various reasons over the years. I've brought certain works. I've got, I've loaned back certain works from, from people. I've gotten works from my galleries here and I've seen them in concert and I've wanted to make new work within it. So that's its own work. It's its own work to kind of curate and play and push. It's like a child, like a teen. When I was a teenager, I was always changing the furniture in my room. I had that impulse to, (laughs) I still do it in hotels. (laughs) Um, Who was we talking? Someone else we was talking to says that they go to a hotel and they pull the bed around and they move the drawers. Yeah, and stuff. I get, I get, I get fairly. <laughs> it's just somehow you know it's, it's kind of like a cat when they have to they have to they have to fuck with it. Uh, 
Can I say that? Okay. Yeah, um, we, we, we love swear words. Um, yeah. Um, in order to get comfortable, I need to kind of push things around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so it's kind of like you've made a museum for yourself there. It's like you, you well, had your whole archive, and you're there. Well, and... Russell, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a museum, but um, it's alive, Russ. But it's got an aura. It's all about the alive aura. You know, and when I saw this space, I was looking for a space for many years. I kept thinking I'm an artist who has not, to have a studio has not always been an obvious thing for me, meaning it wasn't part, it wasn't part of the toolkit required. I can work on a laptop. I have done some of my largest, most ambitious things from a kitchen table, uh, on site, etc. In fact, I'm quite critical of this idea that a studio is a required thing for artists, particularly young students who are coming out of schools with X amount of debt, seeing the pressures of the art world, feel they need to have these studios in order to please this import-export company crap. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but here I am with 15,000 square feet. <laughs> but, um, but because I wanted to make, wanted to make a point, um, but I wanted to play and I wanted to be inspired by space. Um, so some of that, um, that push and pull is, um, is, is conscious, meaning I, I, I wanted to, to consciously play with space with my work. I wanted to also try to unearth the idea of, of what a studio is a little bit. I think there are a few artists we can name who really kind of rocked the world of the studio. Warhol is only one ex obvious example. Bruce Nauman might be another in my, in my book where it's not just this. Let me back up for a second. I hate I hate studio visits. I, I get incredibly anxious about them. I it's a dog and pony show that I find very unfair. I find it very frustrating. And for a while, I had a studio. It was probably the most uncool studio you could have. It was um, above Chelsea Market, uh, the Food Emporium in Chelsea, right? Belly of the Beast. Before any of the galleries had moved out of Chelsea, when my gallery worked a lot, we were all right there. I hated it. But it was a great studio, and I could get good food on the way home, on the way on the way out. Um, but my gallery, Stefania, could bring anybody she wanted to my studio because I was right there. And I remember it was a tipping point for me. Some collectors or came in, and I don't think they had even decided yet whether they liked my work. And I just I had to kind of go boom. You know, you have to at least at least like my work before you come into my space. I'm not here to. to it's, Prove it's traumatic. Yeah. No, if you want to know more, if you have questions about it, if you may only like this stuff, but you don't like that, fine. We've got a place to talk, but we're going to start talking here, not down there. Um, so I, I was reticent about having another project like this where I would uh, uh, um, kind of perform the way I am. But that may be more the point, that it is a bit of a performance now. So I've had groups here, I've had people come here, and I become a kind of component. I navigate the situation. Um, so it's a little bit more theatrical than simply having a student. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you feel isolated there? And do you, because isolation is an important um, medium in your practice, but also I feel like for me, and I hope this doesn't offend, it feels like a study in loneliness within your work. I always see the workers feeling there's an absence of the figure, but it's their public, you know, interactions have happened. It's being projected upon that it's the, the figure is present, but you don't see the figure, but they feel lonely. There's a loneliness and an isolation within all of the work. Like we're seeing you now and you say you've got 15,000 square foot and the structure that we've seen you in now for the audience listening, it looks like an office suite it looks quite hopper-esque. You're there on your own working, you know, and, and I've seen pictures of the Torrington project and, and watch videos and there's these structures that are set up, but they're, they're blocking the eye line and you can hide behind them. You can have, you know, you could, you could coexist with someone there without even seeing them. So isolation and loneliness are, feel very important to you. Is that right? Is that a right presumption? You've, you've, actually, you've asked about 12 different questions. Yeah. There, I, I, I hear 12 different things. It's a rough I mean, time to be special. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so isolation and loneliness. First of all, maybe those are different in my work, but isolation certainly is, um, we'll take that part, um, very, very important in my work, I think. I'm very, very interested in when people feel, that's why these last several years, have, of course, been very interesting, when people feel isolated, yet they're next to other people. So I often have these kind of compartmental structures, right? Also forms of pleasure this way. Think about the video booth structure, but also think about hospital rooms and, and prisons, spaces where you're alone next to other people being alone, next to other people being alone, next to other people being alone is, is very, very interesting to me. Um, and we could talk more about that. I would say, um, I would say, and I'm going to generalize here and take it away from myself just for a moment. I think to be an artist is a fairly lonely <laughs> endeavor. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that is a problem, though. I think it's a, it maybe to a certain degree be a requirement. Um, and first of all, I didn't just say I have 15,000 square feet. You, did you not believe me? I could, <laughs> you made it. Um, um, there, there's actually a lot. There's a lot of space out there. Um, but I'm also not working in complete isolation here. So what I've also done is create a little bit of a, a network of people that are involved. And I'm, and I'm interested in kind of the space reflecting some of those networks. So, for instance, um, my gallery from New York, Stefania Bortolami, there's work that's, that, that's sort of represented by, by, by her here, Maureen. I asked Maureen to send a work uh, here so that that would be on the map as well. My gallery from Berlin is represented here. So while these aren't actual people here, there's, there's a sort of network of, 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 um, of, of, of my transactional relationships and all of my relationships kind of coded into the space. 
Additionally, you know, I, I, on, the, on the project, I, I work with a woman named Christine Massinio, um, and Christine was a dear friend of mine um, who we've worked on projects sort of deeply together several times, and she'd worked at a couple of galleries. And now she's the, um, during this project, she became the um, director of Freeze in the Americas. So this kind of brings this whole other strange network into the project, but she's someone that I have weekly meetings with, and we kind of brainstorm about what I'm doing, where I want to go, but also the public component of the project, which is, I grapple with. It's not a public space, and yet we're inviting a lot of people here. There have been museum groups, there have been school groups, and there have been um, lots of friends and, and informal parties and things like that. So it has, it has this ability to be filled. It has this ability to be peopled. It has this ability to, to, which is a huge thrill after spending time here alone, to see these spaces, these sight lines, as you referred to, these interrupted spaces get activated and get played with. So I'm always enjoying that kind of oscillation between um, singular, being alone, contemplating that work that you have to do alone to a certain degree as an artist, and then and then tossing it out into the world and allowing it to be activated and allow it to be, as I say, completed by any any form of audience. And an audience for me can be a few friends coming over to this space and, and drinking, or it can be a large museum group or a school group coming to the space. I, I just enjoy those, those where the volume gets turned up. In the introduction, I mentioned the show that you did that um, was a body of work that came out of the time that you spent in Sao Paulo. And um, I was really interested, A, in in how that sort of came about was like, I think it was a residency maybe, but, but your, your relationship to um, Helio Otosika, but also the intimacy of the panels, which are like the bulletin boards, which actually in that body of work were t-shirts that you were wearing yourself while you were sort of in Sao Paulo. And I really like them almost like self-portraits. It's almost for me, it's a bit like what you were saying about Frida Kahlo and, um, you know, meeting Gordon Matter Clark, but in those works, they're so incredibly powerful and they're really intimate, small works. And they're very different to the, you know, environmental kind of um, installation work where, you know, where you think surfaces are reflecting or they're, 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 they're these really intimate, very physical forms in a way. Can you speak a bit about that body of work? You know, um, I think it maybe it also goes back to Russell, when you said earlier, this notion of, of querying uh, minimalism or querying Robert, uh, Richard Serra, for instance, I think we were talking about, but I've always liked, and this is why I mentioned that I like even the coupling uh, of, of Gordon Matta Clark and Frida Kahlo together. I like these kind of contradictory impulses and I'm always very interested in the perceptions of autobiography, but also my own desire to, to be autobiographical. So where people look for me in the work, but where I also want to insert myself. I think both things happen at the same time. And I think that's happened um, in uh, situations that are less obvious. Um, there's always a backstory to a work, right? So um, just one example is, you know, something like Deep Purple, just because it's already been brought up. Yes, it was sort of a querying of um, Richard Serra for a number of reasons about materiality, using wood, using something more amateurish in a way, less professional, less industrial, pre-industrial even, portability, more opportunistic, but also the color, this kind of strange artificial color that's been so often connected to queer culture, purple. This kind of color that's not really a color, that's a mix of other colors, that's a little bit too decorative, right? Um, a little bit not naturalistic. 
And I, I was attracted to that. I was attracted to its, its connotations. But at the same time, you know, at the same time, and I've never, I've never said this, I don't think, I might, have, I might have written it somewhere, but my mother's name was Violet and my mother died that year. And it also was my way of kind of winking at that notion of, or nodding to that. So there's always these little embedded things that, that, that I'm hoping people will, will scratch open and maybe some people will see and some things will come together, but it's also these things that detonate over time, right? So this was my way of, of doing something that where my professional and personal lives can interact and intersect, which they always are doing. It's just sometimes they erupt in more um, conscious ways. Yeah. And when I started doing the bulletin boards into more physical things, when I started using clothing and my own, his personal effects and this, this whole series, that was another way of doing it. Another way of saying, does that actually using my own shirts in Sao Paulo, does that actually say anything about me? Maybe it does. Um, they they smelled like me. Yeah. They looked like me. They looked like the way my body fills them out or, or wore them out. But does that say anything about me? I I think maybe yes, but I don't know that exactly. But, but, I don't know what. But you've also reject. you've also pinned them down, like on these on these bulletin boards. Thumbtacks. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, but a, a long time. Sorry, a, alongside nineteen um, seventies sort of texts about sexuality that you found in Brazil. So it's like you know, that they're, they're, they're in a dialogue essentially with, with a written text as well. Um, so there is something for me that was just really striking about even that visually. But then when you think about it, I was really interested in the idea as well, that like when you're a, you know, post, post, post minimal artist, say, um, it's almost like people forget that it's actually your viewpoint or like your way of seeing the world it's so much like a big brain that is the artist that then becomes all these installations but then when you're suddenly presented with a t-shirt and it's such a thing that's touched your chest you know it's like this very personal history in a sense presented in front of you it's like suddenly the artist is there it just sort of really struck me as a, as a body of work I was just like wow I think maybe that's also the part that I that I've always carried with me that I kind of took from certain feminisms in, in the art world that I encountered early on was that there's powerful, powerful kind of critique and unhinging that can happen when the personal is 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 used in in, in combination with other things. Sometimes when it's isolated, when it's only the personal, it's so easy to be written off as as just that person. But 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 when I'm but when you connect it to historical context, when you connect it to other things, um, for instance, you know that show was a show um, uh, that I didn't want to do. I didn't want to go to Brazil. It was just it hit. It was not the right time for me. But I was talked into it, and I was so happy that it happened. I was nudged into doing it, and I spent quite a long time there at this foundation called Auroras, or this space called Auroras, where I lived in this a modernist house. Um, and I'd never been to Brazil before. Um, I'd thought a lot about it. Um, and I thought a lot about Brazilian artists um, and the neo-concrete artists and Oitacica and many of them. They were always very, very important to me. But I'd never really played with that work or played with those figures. But when I got there, I, didn't, I told myself I wasn't really going to be predetermined about what I made there. And I stayed there for about six weeks and then there was going to be the exhibition. And there was a modernist house from 1957. The lower level was the exhibition space and the upper level were bedrooms, including my bedroom. So I was sleeping above where I was making this work. And at night I would go down and have a drink or go outside and think about the space, think about the space, think about the space. And 
it had a lot to do with vulnerability and privacy, the fact that it was a house, things that I was already thinking about all the time. But the fact that I was there, I was the artist, people were waiting for me, what was I going to do? Um, I hadn't planned to use these shirts uh, beforehand at all. Um, I had to move quickly. Um, and I started to think about um, wanting some sort of historical context, wanting some sort of vehicle to play with. And that's when Oitasika became very clear to me. You know, he was he was a queer figure. And yes, he's been written about a lot, but that element is not was not the most um, that's not the way he's been received or packaged entirely, right? This is part that still seemed, but as a part that was super important to me all the time. I mean, there are a lot of artists and then I went, oh, when, when, you know, when you learn someone's biography, when you know somebody's gay, you know somebody has a queer history, that's for queer people that just is, that's just such a, a, a kind of welcome into that practice in a certain way. You may not end up liking the work necessarily, but it's a way in. And for me, it was a way into Brazil and to think about my, my body being there. Oitacica was not simply Brazilian, but he had also spent a lot of time in New York. He was in the East Village. He had gone back and forth. And his life was that bounce and was kind of registering that space that I was in. So I started to think about him and started to think about sort of um, stepping into his shoes in some way and thinking about it. And alongside these small panels, I had made two larger works that were trying to almost kind of occupy his aesthetic a little bit or try to try to mimic him a little bit. And that's something that's always been very important to me. And I've thought about as a very um, as queer territory is um, our ability to impersonate, to imitate, to hide within as a form of camouflage. And it has since become a huge part of our culture to to play with. Um, that we can step into other personas because we because we're not because we've had to, <laughs> and that always interests me that you can pretend to be somebody else. So I sort of merged our personalities a little bit in our practices in this in this um, in, in this show. And with those small panels, for instance, yes, I was looking for other material. I went to many 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 bookstores and things there, but it was also. Um, uh, the color that those pages were printed on. So it, it, it checked lots of boxes, this intense yellow that these 1970s kind of joy of sex kind of books, like they're kind of a little salacious. They were a little bit scientific, a little bit sexy, the kinds of stuff that really excited me when, when in the 70s, right? That I would be like, oh, like they weren't really meant for titillation, but they really were, but they were pseudoscientific. And it was kind of allowed you. Um, so that, that, that was very resonant for me. But, but chromatically, they also worked really well. Chromatically, they also allowed me to kind of take on Oitasika's palette to a certain degree and kind of confuse our identities to, 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 a, to a good effect, I hope. I, I find them very sexually charged in the way that Wolfgang Tillman works with his Faltonworth series where you'll see jeans over the end of a staircase or, or pairs of socks drying on a dryer or there's one in particular... Uh, which is a white t-shirt called Sport Flecken, and it looks like there's some residue on there. You don't know what it is, but it looks like it's yeah. a malfluid residue on there. But it's just uh, a, t a white t-shirt, but it's so sexually charged. And, this, and, and I feel like that these works are really sexually charged with, I don't know what your experience was in <laughs> Brazil on that side of it, but it feels like that, that element is really being contained in these small canvases and they're, and they're really they're tacked in there's lots of thumbtacks that are very present you want them to have that so there's this sort of 
um, again, the fetish sort of element in there. And the physicality of the pressing of those tacks as well. Exactly. I I find them so extraordinary. Me too. I love, 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 love them. Sometimes I think of it as a, as, as a lens, right? So there's the pulling back, the wide view, which includes these more architectural things and spaces that you can kind of imagine your, your body in. Um, those are my more sort of structural or spatial pieces. And then there are these zoom in, zoom into some sort of detail, some sort of almost like it's a, like a, like a still life painting. Right. And there's this kind of context. And then there's that bowl of fruit and then there's that, or that hand gesture or this or that. And that I like to kind of keep bouncing back and forth because for me, it's always been about accumulation. Even when I was younger, I had this sort of fantasy about being an older artist that had made a lot of work. And that was when it was going to be satisfied that it was going to be about the fact that this piece from this year was connected to that piece that was connected to that piece. This arc of a practice was infinite. And, 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 some, and artists work differently. That's always been the way I, the, the fuel that's gotten me going in the morning was that kind of a fantasy that I could fulfill as opposed to that the artists that simply wanted to figure out this one piece in front of them. I, I always want to connect these pieces. They're all parts of the same puzzle. And so these clues, these things, and people find different ways in and different, in different works. So having all this work around you now in this space must be incredibly inspiring to you. Now you are that artist and you have had bodies of work that are now all interconnected when you're able to walk amongst them. And there's what, you know, one of the things that I've, I've just it's so important about this project and you mentioned Wolfgang, there's, a, there's a, a set of three large, I call them container one, two, three, and they were made in 2000, 2001. And they're made the same year as our friend Deep Purple that I've, that I've mentioned uh, over and over again, and many other works of mine, large scale works that have all found homes um, primarily in, in European institutions or have been written about a lot or were exhibited several times. This large-scale work, which was based on works by um, Donald Judd from Marfa, um, were shown in an exhibition at the NGBK in Berlin uh, for an exhibition that was about uh, broken relationships by, curated by Frank Wagner, who did a lot of work at NGBK. And it was a, the, the premise of the exhibition. There were three three artist couples, one of whom had uh, was alive. I was at a live one, and, one, and the other one who had, had died of, of AIDS. So um, there was me and, and Ul Hon, who's a painter um, that I uh, was partnered with. And I've done a lot of, I'd collaborated with him when he was alive. And I've continued to collaborate quite a lot with his work since he died in 1995. And also Wolfgang was in this series with um, um, Jochen Klein um, and had a, 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 another kind of configuration. But for me, these works were in a book and have been dismantled because my gallery at the time, and I was a much younger artist, felt that it would be cheaper to remake the works in the future. And this is what's happened, happens a lot of times to, to work if you can't manage things yourself. So they were kind of lost, not only to, to history, but they were lost to me in a way. Um, and, and, that, and that was very disturbing. So one of the reasons I wanted to do this project was that I could take agency and I could, I could remake them here. And they became the anchor to this, to this project in a certain way. And yes, I get to see those works again. Yes, I get to potentially place those works again, and I get control over them in a certain way. But it also allows this conversation about 
my those relationships at that time uh, to be foregrounded in this space, to think again about Ull's practice, to think about the AIDS crisis, to think about lives lost that are carried forward by works of art. Because I've always felt with his work that he was a little bit older than me. It seemed like a lot older than me at the time. He was three years older than me. But when we were in our early 20s, that was that was significant. Now, not so much. But he died in 1995. And I've always felt this kind of um, obligation sounds too um, difficult a word, but this desire to carry his work forward. And it's so gratifying now to, and I think of that as part of my practice that I kind of, I just tucked him under my arm, you know, and said, you know, we're going to keep going with this. And we've gotten work into, in institutions and I'm not singularly alone with this is gallery in Berlin and, and his mother who handled the estate. Many people were involved in this, but it's very, very exciting for me and important for me to, to, to be able to pull that back into this space so that it's about current work that I'm making and other work that I've made alone, but it's also work that that has other kinds of strange significances that I can decide to underscore again and, and, and enunciate again. And your new work is, is you know, championing the work that he made. It's, it's a really beautiful connection, really. If you think about... Um some of the amazing people that you've you've worked with in your career you know we mentioned them before like Maureen and all these different galleries like um, in Germany and different countries um there's one I really wanted to ask you about which was Colin Deland who I know you met in the early 90s and we spoke about him before with Kembra Fala because she was good friends with him too and I think he died not long ago and I really wanted to have him as a guest on Talk Art and I was so gutted because um I don't think he's around anymore but um can you talk a bit about how that was like an influential friendship that then grew into you being represented by American Fine Arts. So, yeah, more, yeah, Maureen is is a is a newer relationship to me. Yeah, and one of the things that bonded Maureen and I, although we'd known each other for a long time, but I had shown with another gallery in London that I left, and then Maureen took that as an opportunity. But one of the things that Maureen and I think feel like we really have in common is Colin Deland, right, and that moment. So I was in, it was 1988, and, um, <laughs> and I went to something called the Whitney, the Whitney Independent Study Program in New York, which was a, um, a very heady theoretical Marxist program, studio program that was very vital at the time um, with Martha Rosler as instructors and Barbara Kruger wow. and Yvonne Rayner. And, anyway, and that's where I met Ulhon as well, our, our studio's shared a wall and I would hear him painting on the other side of that wall and I would be thinking on my side of the wall. I didn't make anything the whole year. I was completely disabled till the end. I was just overwhelmed. And, um, but I did. And, and, and at the end of the year, we had something called open studios and uh, Colin Deland came to that. And like, like everybody, I had a huge crush on him. He was incredibly charismatic. Uh, very quirky, but very charismatic. And I had just started to hear about his gallery in the East Village um, that he had on 6th Street. And then the year later, 1989, is when he moved to Soho, to Worcester Street. And a lot of my colleagues that I was showing with at the time and uh, I'd gone to school with, Andrea Frazier, Mark Dion, um, these people were starting to show with Colin Deland. And it was really the only gallery then and now that I ever truly said to myself, I, w- I want to be in that gallery. I, 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 I 
rarely liked going to openings. I went to every opening. I just made myself very present. But Colin, it took a while for Colin to want to work with me. And in fact, Colin was a heterosexual. Um, and he eventually married Pat Hearn, the, the incredibly glamorous uh, Queen of the East Village and then Worcester Street. And they were an incredible, gorgeous couple. Both have long have, have since died. Um, and Colin and I created a kind of awkward friendship. Um, a, 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 I had a real art crush on him, um, but I also wanted to be in his program. He was showing Katie Noland at the time, Jessica Stockholder, Jessica Diamond. Um, and finally he said to me, okay, Tom, so, so but like, who would the audience for your work be? And I, I could tell this was, was, was veiled homophobia, like unknowing homophobia, like well-meaning homophobia. Like I said, as opposed to who? And I think because the content was these parks works that we were talking about earlier and about cruising, that that, that that was somehow too specific a topic because the art world at that time was very stratified. It was, there were, there were, there were, there was a gallery called Simon Watson gallery where that's where all the queer shows were group right, shows. Right, but right. I mean, um, uh, but ultimately he wanted to do a show. I was in several group shows there. And then I did a show, my first solo show in 92 or 93 and we had developed a very very strong friendship so i think the friendship and the and the and the work relationship were were coincident um and it became a very very important place for me colin died very young as did pat her and they both got cancer um uh, pat died first pat was very ethereal into yoga um, swam with dolphins, did all these alternative, alternative treatments for her cancer, which is gorgeous woman. Colin smoked till the last moment of, of his life, but they were this incredible figure. And that's when, after Pat died, Colin and Kembra became very close. Right. Um, and we all were part of the same sort of group, but it was, it was an incredibly important relationship in my life. That, that gallery was an incredibly important context for me and their passing, um, um, in 2003, two, three, four, those years, long time ago now, was probably, um, in retrospect, an, uh, a very devastating thing for me that I didn't acknowledge at the time. It was just too much at that time for a lot of us. So many mm -hmm. of our other friends through the AIDS crisis, had, had, we, had, we had lost, and that's when I sort of shifted my energies and, and worked with my gallery in Berlin and did not have another gallery in New York for about eight or nine years until I worked with Stefania Bortolami. It was a kind of strange um, more, period of mourning, I suppose, in some ways, which I did not recognize as such at the time. But after Colin died, Colin, American Fine Arts Company moved into Pat Hearn's gallery. Pat Hearn was one of the first galleries to colonize um, Chelsea. Um, she was there with Matthew Marks and a couple of other galleries. I remember Kat, Pat blowing into the Odeon where we used to meet with Colin and we'd sit and talk. And That's a restaurant, Pat isn't came, it, the Odeon? Yeah. The restaurant on the, yeah. uh, in Tribeca mm -hmm. that's been there quite a long time, sort of our clubhouse. And Pat came in and said, I have this idea for, for gallery in Chelsea. And everybody thought she was ludicrous because it, it was just unknown territory. And of course, it, it, it went like wildfire Chelsea is the epicenter now, yeah. Yeah, and now it's becoming a little bit more diverse across the city again, but it, it held rain for quite a while there. Um, but then American Fine Arts moved into to her gallery and we all did like a, 
a last show in the gallery, which was really sort of beautiful after Colin and Pat had both died. Um, and I did this show called Gone Gone, the title of which came from a Patti Smith song, where, you know, Are You Gone Gone? Um, and it was just this kind of double ba-boom um, wow. reference to them. But it was a, it was a hugely important uh, relationship for me. Before we go on to our final questions, I just want to ask you how important humor is to your practice. And I, I relate to these hinged forms that you have which kind of prop or they lean or they rest some of them have like tinsel around them or, or they have a feather boa there's one that i've seen that looks like it's the end of an office christmas party and someone's been left there like, in the office just hammered kind of just in recovery from drinking way too much and playing way too many games they feel very humorous to me and they feel the most figurative in out of any of the structures that you're sculpting um, well, thank you for, I mean, I always think a lot of my work is very, very funny, but that I have a very dry sense of humor, maybe, but, um, I even think some of these, these kinds of, I always approached kind of taking on minimalism a bit like a New Yorker cartoon. I always think it's very funny, right? Like this idea of people standing in front of these very blank things and wondering about them. I, I find that, and I, <laughs> yeah. then I just like to kind of turn them a little bit, but the figurative things started in 2005. I call them the hinged figures. And I was thinking a lot about, you know, like, what if, um, what if, a, what, what, you know, like the movie Fantasia, the, 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 the Walt Disney movie Fantasia, like what happens after dark in the museum? And I imagine these Robert Ryman or these minimal paintings kind of like flip-flopping off, off the floor and kind of um, uh, hinging across the room. And they're, they're always a little bit about collapsing. They look desperately simple, but you have to anchor them very carefully because they do have weight and they're all hinged and they're all precarious. And one of the ones I think you're referring to Christmas collapse has to do with Truman Capote. And then I have one here in the space called that has a big bandage on it from 2010, I guess it's called uh, bent, beat up, beat up again and bewildered. No, bent, bandage, beat up, beat up again and bewildered. So they, they are a bit about precarity, about collapse, about fragility, but they're also have this kinds of uh, humorous kinds of take on that. And this also the way we like to laugh when someone falls down, this is assuming they don't get really hurt, but that kind of, that, that, that space between tragedy and humor that space between accident and and and, and the eruption of laughter like a one-liner like a comic strip one-liner yeah. in some ways and you mentioned the new yorker comics it's an image and a line of dialogue that's what these works serve as in some way yeah and they also very you know if if i if i think about this notion of accumulation and my works acting together over time and these all being parts of the same swath in my life I'm very, very excited to see these pieces in relationship to these pieces that seem less figurative. Like, do they become the figures in, in a group constellation? Exactly. No, I love it. So we're going to get into our final questions with you. This has just been so amazing, Tom. Such a huge fan. Um, if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, you can steal it nicely from any museum, any collection, any of your friends' collections, what would it be and why? You know, okay, so I don't own much work. I have very few things and they tend to be uh, just dear friends and a few things, but I have always, I have a, I live in a, okay, so I'm I maybe more interested in the idea of an art heist than owning art. So, but but this, 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 this allows me in. I've always been very enamored of this ridiculously large sculpture 
and multiple by um, Louise Bourgeois called Maman, which is this unbelievably large spider, spider. Uh, structure that to me plays with all sorts of things. And I, the house I live in in the countryside is exactly the kind of house you don't see this sculpture in front of ever. You see it in front of a low modernist structure. You see it in a public plaza. I live in a shingled house that looks a lot like Jackson Pollock's house in the Springs. It's just super American vernacular. And I would love if I could get, well, I also like the idea that it would be extremely difficult to steal something like that, but it could be done. <laughs> We will we will help you with We're that. We're 100% <laughs> helping you with that. I love that work, by the way. That work's major. Isn't it? Isn't it incredible? I mean, and I did a, yeah. I did a sculpture here. I did it when I was working with Stuart Shave in, a, in an exhibition that was based on that. And it's, um, it's a stool on a pedestal, but it's called I Am My Mother. But it was a little bit thinking about, thinking about Mammal. Nice. Next question. The, Next question. <laughs> the other question we ask every guest <laughs> is, what is your favorite color? Well, I think colors are a little bit like um, stages or moods. So I think if you had asked me that when I was 18, it would have been very defiantly blue, but I think that would have been everything to do with Joni Mitchell. And it would have been about the fact that I characterized myself as a depressive, but I also think that I thought that was interesting. I also, um, later on, I probably would have, before it was very obvious, I would have said black, but only because, and not because Maureen said it, but because um, it was, I was thinking about Tony Smith early on, but then when it became identified with my work, I could no longer say that. Um, right now, I would say it would be kind of um, um, a liver colored brown because I'm in the process of trying to get a Vishla puppy and oh. that is the color of a Vishla puppy. So I think colors are, are transient in terms of how um, they affect us. And right now, I would say Vishla Brown. Vishla Brown. What is the best advice you have ever received when it comes to your art practice? Well, there's been a lot. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, I had a very, very important um, person in my life named Craig Owens, who was a teacher of mine, who was a theoretician, who was a queer man, who was extremely um, uh, funny, very articulate, incredible writer. And I had his classes at the School of Visual Arts, and then we became friends after this before he died. And he had always somehow talked to me and about this notion of a practice versus a work of art, like doing something over du duration, doing for something for time. Um, that idea maybe of, of, of patience and duration and the larger uh, view of work has, been, has served me very well. Tom, this has been um, incredible. Thank you so, so much. Can people follow you on Instagram? They can. Um, they can, yes. What is what is your what is your what is your Instagram? <laughs> is it, it, it is it Burton Burr? I think it's Burton Burr, isn't it? Burton yeah. Burr. Yeah, like Bond, James Bond. Um, I don't. And yes, they can. And um, and and uh, yeah, I show with Bortolami Gary in New York, and of course Maureen and Gary Noy in Berlin. And are you working towards anything right now? Are we going to be able to see an exhibition soon? In March. I will be showing a new exhibition at Bortolami Gallery in New York City. Excellent. Well, this has been incredible. 
Um, well, I don't it was know wonderful to meet you both. So thank you very much, uh, Tom. Everyone listening, please check out all of those galleries. Check out Tom at Tom Burtom on or Burtom Burr. What is it? Burtom Burr. Burtom Burr. Burtom Burr on uh, Instagram. And we will be back very soon. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.